Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today, what I'm going to be presenting to you is a section of a training that I did out in New Mexico this last week. And um, on September 28th of 2021 this year, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, I was out in New Mexico doing a presentation at the National Academy Retrainer. Uh, on behalf of the San Juan County Sheriff's Office, I uh, was invited by Mark Fetzer. And you may remember Mark Fetzer. He was uh, an interviewee that I had earlier in this podcast. And he is planning on doing a row in a boat across the Atlantic with some other members of his agency and some other agencies to raise awareness on suicide, uh, the suicide situation in our country. So um, he invited me out to do a presentation at the National Academy Retrainer, and that's FBI National Academy Retrainer. And um, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, so this is a presentation that I was giving to those folks. It was a, a really good time. It was a really good group, a lot of questions. And I think that you're going to get a lot out of the presentation that I gave those folks. And so this is going to be section one. It's going to be a number of sections. It was a four-hour presentation. And I hope you guys find this helpful, and I'm sure that you will. So this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. FHE Health actually funded the trip that that, uh, made out to New Mexico, and they are a great sponsor. In fact, they are sponsoring the trip across the Atlantic by Mark and, and his crew. So check them out, guardianinitiatives.org. That's guardianinitiatives.org, and they would appreciate your help as well. So here we go. This is going to be section one of the presentation that I did out in New Mexico. So my name is Mike Van Meter, and when I say close to the end there, I, I taught at the FBI Academy from 2010 to January of 2017. What they did, uh, they, they came up with a term limits for instructors, for the agents, that is, because not, uh, the, if you guys remember the professional support folks, there was no term limit on them. It was just for the agents. They would rotate us around. Uh, so I was there from 2010 to, like I say, January of 2017, and it was a good time. I enjoyed that. I, I never set out in my career to be an instructor at the academy, but that's just the way the things work out, worked out. And I'll, and I'll tell you how that happened in, in my full story. So I'm going to do sort of my bio is going to be interwoven in, in the story that I'm going to be telling you guys. But I'm going to have to go back to the beginning and tell you about how we ended up here and why it is that I talk about addiction and and uh, all of the, the addiction issues and, and particularly recovery, because that's the important thing. The important thing is that people get well. I'm going to ask you guys this question. I'm going to ask you a question here. How many of you, how many of you know someone or is someone, is related to someone, work for or has somebody working for you that has an addiction issue? It might be easier to ask it this way. Who does not know anyone in their life that has an addiction issue. Is there anybody? Now, there are some of you that didn't raise your hand the first time. So, is there anybody here? So, anybody here not know anybody that has an addiction issue? Interesting. Interesting. Because I've asked that question for years now, 
And I've never had one person say they didn't know somebody that fit into one of those categories. That's kind of interesting. So one of my degrees is in political science, so that kind of makes me a scientist, right? I'm a scientist and I do research. Not really. I just kind of look at people. I'm more of an observer of people. And what I've noticed is that over time, everybody knows someone. And in fact, what I'm going to tell you, this may or may not surprise you, is every group I talk to, about a third of the people in that group, that sample size, actually is suffering from an addiction themselves. What that means is there's somebody sitting here right now that I'm talking to, right? And I don't know who, that's, who that is. Only you know who that is. But addiction is a very, very big problem, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And when I talk about addiction, you know, there's two types. There's process addictions and chemical addictions. Have you ever heard that? We all would know what chemical addictions are, right? You put drugs or alcohol in your body. But what's a process addiction? Anybody know? Please, not all at once. Not all at once. Please be respectful of your neighbors. Don't talk over them. What's a process addiction? You should know. Take a guess. I said certain drugs aren't addictive. Certain drugs are not addictive, actually. That's true. Um, how about this? Here's your clothes. How about this? Something you're addicted to, that you, but it's not a chemical that you put in your body. Can you? Yes, sir. Pornography, yes. Can you become addicted to that? Absolutely. The internet. What? He looked over at you. The internet, right? He's like, that's what you've been doing 12 hours a day at work. Yes, pornography, the internet. How about gaming, video gaming? Can that be an addiction? Yeah, yeah, we're seeing people. I have patients, and you'll, you'll hear later about what I do today. I have patients that are in our treatment center that are addicted to video games. And you think, what? Yeah, it's gotten to the point where that, that controls their life. They're not going to school. They're not going to work. They're not doing anything but playing video games. That happens. That's actually making it, it's not in the DSM-5 yet, but, it, but it's going to get there. Video games. How about food? Too much, too little? How about work? Can that be a problem? Yeah, yeah. The definition of a problem is anything that you do that causes damage to your primary relationships, be they professional or personal. Right? Have exercise. So let's say I'm training for an Ironman triathlon. Um, and doing, is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing? Can it be? Can it be? Why? How, how could, that, could that be a problem? I mean, you want me to go exercise. You want me to do these things. You, you, in fact, we're going to talk about taking care of yourself and health. Mike, you just contradicted yourself. Now you're saying that training, physical training, can be a bad thing. You say yes. Why? Right. If you have kids... Your wife, you know, your kids, Daddy, I want to go to a movie with you Friday night. And you say, I can't. My training plan says I have to do a 12-mile run Friday night. It's part of my plan. Sorry, honey, we can't do that. The next week, I got to do a 40-mile bike ride. And you start missing those things. It can be a problem. Uh, and we'll talk about this later on when we get into recovery. Because we do promote uh, exercise, diet and exercise in recovery from substance abuse particularly aerobic type of exercise, and there's a lot of neuroscience behind how that helps you, but we addicts don't do anything half-ass. We do, we do everything to the extreme, okay? And we, can, and we can take something good like diet and exercise or education or work and turn it into a bad thing. Same thing with work, right? Hey, I, this guy, I, we, we admire, and the problem with those types of addictions is to a certain degree, they're admirable. We, we admire them. Look, Mike works so hard, he's in the office 16 hours a day. 
yeah, but I'm not with my wife, I'm not with my kids, I'm not doing, I don't have other, I'm not fulfilling other responsibilities in the community, and then that becomes a problem, okay? So we'll, we'll get into to some of that stuff. So um, a little bit about me. So I am going on 10 years in long-term recovery, which means for nearly 10 years, I have not found it necessary to put alcohol or, or drugs that have not been prescribed and used as prescribed in that 10-year period. Okay? And what I'm going to tell you guys is that in my lifetime, with all the things that I've done in my life, and we'll go through my bio a little bit, the toughest thing I ever did was get sober. And the most important thing I did in my life was get sober. Because if you're like me, and alcohol, alcohol was my presenting issue, if you're like me, alcohol ruled me. It controlled me. I did not control it. And had I not gotten into long-term recovery, I wouldn't be alive today. And that's not an exaggeration, okay? Alcohol and drugs work until they don't work. Then they take over, and then they rule your life, and then you start a progressive disease that is deadly, and it get, gets worse over a period of time, never better. There are no exceptions, and you're not going to be the first exception and this has happened since the beginning of time. Since the beginning of time. The beginning of recorded human history, there's not been an exception. And you're not going to be it. But the problem is, every addict thinks they are going to be that one exception. Right? But there's good news. Before you die, you're going to destroy everything and everyone that you hold dear. Right? That's the bonus that goes along with it. Unless you can get hold of it and put it into remission. And what do we mean by remission? If you're talking about drugs and alcohol. It never goes away. And the solution, putting it into remission means you completely abstain. Now, we're going to talk about some programs here today. There are some programs out there that talk about harm reduction or controlling use. Have you guys heard this term, harm reduction? It's a big thing now in the community. We addicts are always looking for ways where we can use safely, like normal people. And there are, there are programs that are out there. And I'm not saying they're good or they're bad, I'm just gonna make you aware of them because you, you should be, particularly you leaders and agencies, and uh, well, actually everybody, because I know that you're out there working with people that have mental health issues, homeless people, you know, and who are most of the homeless people, right? People with mental health issues and addiction issues or a combination of both, the co-occurring disorders. And, and so it's important for you and your officers to understand these things so they know what they're dealing with, right? So we can get these people the help that they need. So you need to be aware of not only AA, NA, GA, SA, all of those things, but SPART Recovery and Dharma and some of the other programs. Uh, Celebrate Recovery, which are, are other, that's for people with a, a, a Christian leaning. They're, they're all programs that are out there. They all have their pluses and minuses. Now, there is one program, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which all the other 660 12-step programs that are out there, yes, there's that many, uh, are all derivatives of that, that basic program, but then they search for other ways of trying to get sober. But I'm gonna warn you, warn you, warn you about the programs that are going to promote harm reduction in being able to control your use. If you've gotten to the point where you end up in a 28-day treatment program or a detox or an emergency room, or somebody in your life has said to you, I think you need to go to an AA meeting, 
what I'm going to submit to you is your days of using moderately are, are over. Right? No, by the time you end up in your first 12-step meeting, your life has become a crap show. It really has. You're probably just better off not using. Would you guys agree with that? Would you agree with that? Okay. So before we, we talk about the nuts and bolts of this, this whole issue, let's talk about how we got here. How did I get here today? Right? Met Mark Fetzer here uh, online. It's like an online dating thing, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Mark, I actually don't know how we met. How did you, how did you hear about me? Through Heidi? Okay, Heidi, who is instructor, we'll, we'll talk about Heidi. Um, so, yeah, I get, oh, and I think I'm on the NA web, what, the 266 website, or the, the Facebook site. It's on there. So it wasn't any other kind of a freaky online, you know, that stuff that you guys all do, you know, that you know, sweep right, right, left. Is it right or left? See, I always mess that up. That's why it, it, ends, it doesn't end well, you know. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. So, like I said, I'm, I'm in recovery. And... So let me start at the, the end of the story, then we'll go back to the beginning. And so like this first portion, I'll just, just tell the story. So I got into recovery, and uh, I'm an instructor at the academy. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the FBI Academy, there's like two major programs. We have uh, the, the training for agents and analysts, which is just like the police academy, right? That's our version of, you know, you become an FBI agent and you go through the academy. And so we talk about interviewing and interrogation, all the agent stuff, shooting, all that, that good stuff. And then we have what's known as the National Academy. And um, for those of you who haven't been to the National Academy, you might, might even be saying, what is this all about? The National Academy is a program that was put together by J. Edgar Hoover back in the day. Now, you've got to remember in the early 1900s, police departments didn't speak to one another. For a, to a large degree, there was very little training for most police departments in the United States. And that was a problem. So J. Edgar Hoover... Um, decided to put together a program which was known as the National Academy, and that was to bring in all the, the leaders, the, the executives from all these, these police departments, later expanded to worldwide, not just the U.S., brought people in, and the idea is that we're going to train the leaders of these organizations to try to standardize training nationwide, because that, that did not exist in the early days. So brought them all together, and that continued over time. We're, I don't know what session, we're, are we in the 280s now? I think 280-something, those of you that are recent graduates, I think it's in the 280s. So they're all numbered, the sessions, what's that? I think they, actually, I think they started this week, um, 280. And so it goes back to one would have been in 1930-something, I think is when it, when it started. So it's been around a little while. It's a, a prestigious program for many police departments and sheriff's offices. You will not become chief unless you've gone to the NA. It's not true of all agencies, but for many agencies, that's, that's part of the process. It's a big deal in, in police land, it really is. And I ended up at the academy as a new agent instructor. I was teaching interview and interrogation. That's, that's, what I, that, that's my background, that's what I do. So I ended up at the academy and that's what I was doing. In 20, so I was there in 2010, and when, whenever Snowmageddon, or no, I'm sorry, the sequestration, you guys remember the sequestration that they had? They shut down the government. Well, they shut everything down. Uh, nobody was going through the academy, and they didn't know how long it was going to go, and it was going for about, they thought, maybe two years. So you had all these agents that I was working with said, man, I can't sit here for two years, so I'm going to go back to the field, or I'm going to retire, or I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And so the number of instructors started dwindling down. And when they start, so the National Academy started back up before new agents did, and they said, we don't have enough instructors. 
And there's certain requirements for the National Academy because uh, the new agent's training is training. The National Academy is education. There's a difference, training and education. We talked about that a little bit yesterday. So this is police or agent training, which is like police training. And then the other, the National Academy are college classes. The University of Virginia sponsors it and uh, accredits those classes. So when you go there, you get credit hours, right? For those of you that went, you got UVA credit hours. So with that, if you're an instructor, you have to become a UVA instructor. So the FBI has no control over that. You have to go down to the University of Virginia, they have to interview you and you go through and there's, you have to have at least a master's degree and all this kind, all these processes. So they said, hey, does anybody want to teach over at the NA? Well, I had been a police officer. I thought, hey, police are my people. In fact, frankly, I like police better than I like FBI agents, to be honest, but don't tell anybody that. But it's the truth. So I decided to do that, raised my hand, um, got selected, and then I went over to the NA. Went over there, and like every new instructor, you're given classes. Okay, you're gonna teach public speaking, you're gonna teach, because they have that at the NA, you're gonna teach interview and interrogation. Then there was a class called Officer Involved, uh, Officer Involved uh, Crisis, or Officers in Crisis is what it was called at the time. And the premise of, oh, excuse me, Officer Involved Shootings. It's been a while since I taught that class. I don't even remember the title of it. Officer Involved Shootings. Now, the premise of that class is, we're, to the executives, remember the, that's the audience, what kinds of programs, policies, procedures are you going to have for your agency to deal with an acute incident? Now, it doesn't have to be a shooting, even though that was in the title. It could be your partner died of cancer, you were involved in a car crash, you saw too many dead babies, whatever. And what are, what are you going to have to help your agency out? But it's the acute incident. Now, based on my own experience from the police department, uh, which was the Met Metropolitan Washington, D.C. Police Department, you know, we had a lot of shootings there, a lot. We had at least one per week, actually, when I was working there. So dealing with officers in that acute phase was something that was pretty common. So it was a well-oiled machine. It was a very well-oiled machine. And I thought, well, most of these departments have that down pretty well. But I would listen to the chiefs talk about what they really needed. And then just through my own observations, and by the way, by then I was already in recovery. So I was looking through a recovery perspective. And I said, we're missing something here. And what we're missing is, what I've seen over my career, was it's not so much the acute incident that needs to be dealt with, it's the long-term aftermath. Maybe you've seen this. Somebody's involved in a shooting, and we all come around our brother or sister, and we take care of them, take care of the family, we take food to them. How you doing? Do you need anything, right? But that doesn't last forever. And depending on where you work, like in D.C., that lasted for about three days, and then there was another shooting, and then they moved on from you, okay? So they forget about you. In other departments, you've probably seen that, where they just kind of move on. People aren't calling you forever. They're not bringing food forever. Maybe you've been injured on the job, physically injured, and you go to the doctor, and what do they do? All you guys that go to the doctor for those ailments, what do they do? What do they give you? Drugs. Percocet. Is that good stuff? Do you have any on you? No? Yeah. I know you don't have any ammunition on you anymore. Yeah. No, they give you Percocet, hydrocodone, oxycodone, all those types of things, right? Is this stuff addictive? Oh, yeah. Is it good stuff? You don't want to answer. <laughs> no. It's, yeah. Good. 
You didn't like how it felt, so we'll talk about that. But they give you stuff, right? Do people get addicted to that? Sure, they do. So the person that you're giving that award to for whatever incident they were in, a year later, you're firing them. Why? Because they're an addict. You're thinking, what the hell happened to Mike? He was a great agent. He was a great officer. We gave him, the, remember we gave him an award, and we're, now we're firing his ass? How many of you have seen that in your career? Some of you guys, actually a lot of you are nodding your heads. Have you seen that? Have you ever thought deeply about that? Well, I noticed it, and all these chiefs were noticing it. And they said, Mike, our problem is that. Like, we didn't see it coming. How many of you have fired somebody in your, or maybe it's not you, your agency fired somebody, and they say, Mike was a drunk, and you're like, I didn't even know he drank. Or he popped positive on your analysis. I didn't know he took drugs. How many of you have seen that? Have you seen that? Didn't even see it coming. Or, conversely, you saw it coming a long time ago. Mike gets fired, and you're like, about time. How long did he have to keep showing up with alcohol on his breath? You know, it took them long enough. Have you, have you seen that? I have. Seen it over and over and over. Well, they had seen it too. And they thought, well, we need to do something about that. And I thought we needed to do something about that. So I just wanted to take a little pause here and just give a shout out once again to our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by FHE Health. FHE Health has been providing life-changing behavioral health services for more than 20 years. They treat substance abuse and mental health disorders in an individualized and comprehensive approach. Recognizing the specialized treatment needs of the first responder community, they've created Shatterproof, a dedicated program for law enforcement, fire rescue, and similar communities to receive treatment among peers. They're experienced in providing privacy and working with unions for employment. FHE Health is committed to providing the best care experience for our patients, for their families, and for our community. So learn more at FHEHealth.com. So I'm going to continue on now with the rest of part one of my presentation out in New Mexico at the FBI National Academy Retrainer. But what would happen? Now, when I got into recovery, uh, my rec- my Recovery was no secret. I've, I've never made it. In fact, I'm here talking to you guys. I'm going to submit to you too. You're not going to hear somebody tell their story the way I'm telling you my story today very, very often. Right? You've heard my story. Have you ever been to any other training where anybody's done that? And you will not. I, I, my money says you will never hear somebody tell you today what I'm going to tell you. Okay? Because there's such stigma behind it. And... In my, when you hear my story, you'll see I, I was never able, able to have any anonymity because the FBI took that from me. And that's a story in and of itself. Caused a lot of resentments and a lot of anger. I was very bitter for a long time towards the FBI regarding how I was treated when I raised my hand to get help. But my boss, so my boss, when I was at the academy, she knew I was in recovery, and, and I would talk to her about this guy. You're just sitting around having coffee, and we were talking. And I said, you know, we're missing the mark on this. Well, what do you think we should do? And I would tell her stories. Oh, well, how do you think that should be handled? And I would tell her. And she'd go, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that's how that worked. Then we'd have another conversation. Well, how do you think, it, what would you do? And we had enough of those conversations where she finally said, hey, have you ever thought, I mean, you're an instructor here, you know, you, you can go down to UVA and talk to the academics about this. Have you ever thought about, like, developing a class talking about this? And I hadn't. And she said, well, maybe you should. And we started out, we did, they had these lunchtime trainings at the academy called brown bag lunches, where you do, like, every instructor would take, like, an hour of what they teach and teach it to the other instructors. Did that, and people were like, hey, we like that. And then it became, like, a two-hour seminar seminar. 
then a half-day event, and then eventually it was, hey, why don't you develop a whole class? Go down to University of Virginia and develop a whole college class. And eventually, that's what we did. It started out, and, and by the way, I'm no academic. I'm no academic. I'm, you know, <laughs> barely an instructor. And to sit down and develop a college course for the University of Virginia, which is a, a really good school, was intimidating, and I had no background in that. And I remember um, sitting down at the kitchen table with my wife, because my, wa my wife, who's a big recovery warrior herself, and I'll, I'll mention her in the story, we literally sat at my kitchen table and we took butcher's paper. And it's 10 weeks, 22 sessions, two hours each, and let's just envision what we would want this to, to look like. And so we sat down and literally just started piecing together what we thought people should know about in a class with no direction, no help, no nothing. And we did it. And we, we put it together. And, and it was just a hodgepodge of things. Now, because what happened was I found out how political these things can be, right? I found out how they could be. You know, I, I felt like a salesman because I'm, you know, the course didn't just come together. I had to get permission from the FBI, which are law enforcement people that aren't academics. So I got to sell it to them. Then I have to get on the University of Virginia who are academics and not law enforcement people, but I got to make both happy, right? To get things done. And so I would walk in and I would say, hey, we want to do this. And the FBI, I started with the FBI and the FBI would be like, well, Mike, you know, we see what we're doing, what you're doing here. That's pretty good. But, uh, you know, suicide's a real problem in law enforcement. Tell you what, Mike, you had some suicide stuff in there, we'll sign off on it. Okay, roger that. So I add that. And then I get to the next level, all the way up to an executive assistant director. It'd be like, uh, you know what, Mike? Family violence. We have a real problem with family violence. Tell you what, you add that in, sign off on it. Okay. Do all that all the way up the chain. Then you go down to Charlottesville, same thing. Oh, you know, what about families? Families need to get well, too. Yeah, you're right. Add that in. Through their whole chain. And so by the time you get to the end of it, you've got all this stuff in there that you, like, I had to appease you, I had to appease you, I had to appease you. I just want to talk about alcohol, but now i got to talk about all this other stuff, too. And, but it, it gets added in there, and we put the course together, so I have all this stuff in there. And, of course, you throw it in, and now you do the first rollout, and you're in front of all these police executives, and you got to test it. And when I was at the academy, I don't know how many years it was, but to have a course from the ground up developed, it had been years since anybody had done that. And when you're in front of a group like this, do you guys think you're an easy crowd to talk to? Do you? You think that maybe there's a few type A personalities in this room? Huh? The weak ones. You're more like type triple A. I mean, you're people that walk around with ammunition, guns, and knives. Yeah. Right? It's a tough crowd to talk to. Now, when you're at the National Academy, everybody in the room, everybody in that room is in charge of all these type A people. So what do you think that crowd's like? You guys have been there, the NA, right? Tough crowd. It's a really tough crowd. These are people that can do and will tell you what they think to your face. They're not going to knife you in the back. They're going to tell you to your face what you think. So it's a pretty intimidating thing. University of Virginia says that when you develop a course, you have to go through 64 iterations to get it to where it needs to be. 
64 iterations. The FBI will give you about three before they pull the course. You get your crap together within three sessions or we're pulling it, okay? But no pressure, no pressure on you at all. And so I remember the first time I got up to teach the course, I had been told about the spiritual principle of anonymity in recovery, which means that we don't talk about recovery outside, our recovery outside of recovery circles. That was what I was told. I've since then done a lot of deep research into what Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders of AA, said about this spiritual principle, and it's been completely misinterpreted over time. But at the time, I, you only know what you know. And so here I am teaching this course, and, and that's what I've been taught, was that the spiritual principle of anonymity means that you don't share your recovery outside of recovery circles. So therefore, when I got up to teach the class, I just started talking about addiction, just, just like, it, like it was an academic thing. Like, just talking about it. And that first session, we're about three weeks in, and three cops come to my, the office, and they come in and they shut the door, and I'm looking at them, I'm like, oh, this isn't good. And they said, hey, you're in recovery, aren't you? I said, you know, I really like how you guys just kind of work your way into these conversations. <laughs> you know, kind of subtle, build a little rapport first. Yeah. And I said, why? Is it so obvious? And they said, yes, it is. And he said, so here's the deal, Mike. Don't know why you're not talking about it in class. You get up here and you talk about addiction, and it's pretty clear you didn't just read a book about this yesterday. You live it. It's your life. And you talk about being brutally honest with yourself and others, but you get up and you're lying to us. And you're lying to us. We don't know why you're doing that, but that's not going to work. And here's what you need to know. You do what you're going to do, but, but at the end of the session, you're going to get raped on your evaluations by doing that. It's up to you. But you're, you're not being honest with us. And so I had this dilemma, this ethical dilemma. What do I do? I know what I've been taught in the program, at least up until that point. But I also know the reality of, you know, I'd worked in that organization called the FBI for a while at that point. I know how they operate. I know how the University of Virginia operates. And what do you do? And so I'm calling my sponsor. He's saying, hey, Mike, sorry, we, we don't talk about if, if these guys aren't in recovery, we don't talk to them. Talking to my wife, who understands AA, I, and we had a long discussion. It went for about four hours. And at the end of the night, she's like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what to tell you. And this is one of those weird things. And I don't know if you're a believer in God. And it's really none of my business. That's between you and God, whether you are or not. It's not important that you under, uh, believe in a higher power. It's vital that I do, but it, you, you, know, you, you make your own decisions. But I've had a number of things in my life that have happened to me where I just sit and I think, is that odd or is that God? It's just like a, you know, a coincidence. And here's what happened. So I was really struggling over this because we had put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of emotional investment into this whole course. And we're getting ready to go to bed that night and I'm, I go back in the bedroom and I'm brushing my teeth and, I'm, and I've got like 700, you know, guys know this in television, there's like 700 channels with nothing on, right? You can't watch anything. I can't watch the NFL anymore. I can't watch the NBA. You know, they've destroyed everything. So here I am just watching nothing. And I'm going through the channels and all of a sudden I stop on one, one channel and there was a documentary on that I've never seen before and I've never seen since, actually. But it was on that moment. And it was a video 
called, uh, from, it, it, there's an organization called Faces and Voices of Recovery. In this video called Anonymous People, and if you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. It's an obscure documentary that's out. And the premise of Anonymous People is this. Reco uh, addiction kills so many people in this country. We talk about cancer, which is horrible, ravaging. We talk about other diseases. Now, this is pre-COVID, but now even COVID is killing a lot of people. And I'm not diminishing that. People are dying. I'm, I'm not diminishing that. But do you know it doesn't kill the most people in America? Do you, do you know what the number one killer in America is? Take a wild guess. Addiction. Whether you die from it outright or someone else dies from your actions resulting in your addictions. If you add that together, it's staggering the numbers of people that die from addiction. And that's not even adding up the ruined lives. Because I could go around this room, and, and many of you will talk to me about, my dad abused me, I was abused by an uncle, my family wasn't there, they divorced, you know, all, all those stories, you add that. That's human tragedy, isn't it? We're not even talking about that. So they point this out. And they point out that it doesn't get any attention. I mean, after all, those of you that still watch the NFL, do they not have Pink Month? What is Pink Month? Bre breast cancer, right? So it's not even cancer, it's breast cancer. Why breast cancer? Okay. Hear me out on this. It's breast cancer because we can sympathize with that. Everybody has a mom, everybody has a sister, every and it's a horrible thing, but it's not the only cancer. There's a lot of other cancers, but they specifically talk about breast cancer. Why? Because people advocate for that. And this was the thesis that they had in this documentary. The problem with addiction is nobody advocates for it. And nobody advocates for it because the people that suffer from it have been conditioned to never talk about it. Think about it. The AIDS epidemic in the 80s, remember that? <gasps> it's the gay man's disease. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about that. Stigma. Well, the gay community came out and said, people are dying. We gotta, we gotta stop this. We gotta do something about it. So you saw the marches, you saw the rallies, if you remember that time. People came out and advocated, and then what happened? Aid came in for, you know, for AIDS. And there's a lot of support. We don't even talk about AIDS really all that much anymore because so much support was given because people stood up and said, people are dying and we've gotta do something about this. Over a disease, that really had a stigma associated with it. So they made that correlation in this video with addiction. And that is, hey look, we all know somebody that, that has addiction. I established that at the beginning of this, right? We all know somebody. Maybe you are that somebody and you need help. But where do you go to get help? How do you get help? What is the issue? How do you deal with that? How do you treat it? Those types of discussions need to happen. But the problem is that in this country, and in fact worldwide, because believe it or not, America is, is actually doing pretty well compared to, to other countries. The, in America, we need to be talking about this so people know where to get well. But who is going to talk about it? We all have this idea that, that addiction, alcoholism, is the homeless person, the dreg of society, the person living in a raincoat under a bridge. That's what we believe. But the fact is, that's not even close to the truth. People that fit that category are about 3% of all addicts. Everybody else, the vast majority of people that have addiction issues, look like you and I, are successful people. And it might even shock you that... that most alcoholics are actually extremely high achievers, extremely high achievers.
because there's personality traits that go with it, and we'll talk about that. As a result of that, there are people, well-known people, that are in recovery. And I'll, I'll just name a few, and, the, and I'm not outing them. They're, they're out in the public. You can look it up. They're very open about it. Buzz Aldrin, one of the original uh, seven astronauts. A lot of rock and roll musicians, I'm doing some studies on that right now. It seems like artists and musicians have a very high propensity towards addiction. Lots of them. Lots of them. Aerosmith. You guys familiar with that? They're all in recovery? They're all recovering heroin addicts? You guys listen to Aerosmith out here? I don't know what the, you guys listen to out here in Alaska. Aerosmith? Okay. So they're all in, they're all in recovery. Um, George W. Bush, President of the United States. He used to hold AA meetings at the White House. Did you know that? No, because nobody talked about it. My sponsor used to go to those meetings. Doctors, lawyers, airline pilots, CIA agents, FBI agents, police officers, firefighters, all the way. I walk into AA meetings in the D.C. area, and, and people you see on television every night are in those meetings, all right? But they've been conditioned to not talk about it. So the, this documentary said we need, to, we need to do something about that. And we need people that can go out and openly talk about their recovery because the fact is, if you are in recovery, you, there's nothing you've done in your life. I don't care if you went to medical school. I don't care if you were one of the original seven astronauts. I don't care if you were president of the United States. The most important thing you did in your life was get sober. Because without that, you wouldn't have been president of the United States or an astronaut or an FBI agent or a CIA agent or any of those other things. But you've been conditioned to be ashamed of that. They've told you. They have told you to be ashamed of that. And what we are saying is celebrate it so you can be an example to others. Yesterday, we talked about that yesterday, right? You are a leader in your organization. And in your organization, as part of being a leader, is you let people know about it, and then you lead the way on, I got better, I got well, and so can you. And I'm going to help you do that. If you want it. And that's what we have to celebrate. So my wife, as I'm watching this, I was just minding my own business, brushing my teeth. This came on. And my wife comes into the bedroom and she starts brushing her teeth. And she's looking at it and she's hitting me and she's going, uh, uh. I said, what? She goes, uh, uh, uh. And then finally she, she cleared her mouth out and she said, that's your answer right there. That's your answer. It cannot be coincidence that this is on at this very moment. And I looked at that as a God moment. So the next morning, the next morning I go in, and whatever we had scheduled for that day, I, I said, guys, here's what we're going to do. Shut the door over there. Keep those FBI executives out of here. Don't want them in here. So I'm going to tell you something. And for two hours, I got up and I went through my story. Now, for those of you who know the, know the NA, that's a big risk. I knew that day... Either my career was over or it was going to be successful. But kind of looking at the crowd, I thought, this is it. And I remember being so nervous because I had never, outside of recovery circles, ever told my story to anyone. And I remember I was wearing a suit. You could have wrung it out by the time we were done. And when I told my story, what shocked me was the entire class lined up and they came down. And they were like, man, really appreciate you sharing that. Man, you know, my ex-wife... God, she struggled. She went to treatment three times. I wish she, she would have gotten the message. Man, I'm trying to get my son into treatment. He, he's, he's living on the streets right now. You know, can you talk to him? I had a guy come up and hand me a coin. Handed me his AA coin. 
and, and the, showing me how many years you know he had. Because if you aren't familiar, the, we, we usually celebrate lengths of time, and he, he handed me his coin, and it had the, the number of years that was on it. And, uh, and he just kind of looked at me and went, all right, all right, brother, good. And, and everybody came up and had their story, every one of them. And that's when it first hit me, because I didn't really realize the exception. I was like, everybody here had a story. Ex-wife, son, them, family members, uh, friends, co-workers, things along those lines. And that really hit me. And so from that day forward, I told my story, because I told my story in your class, didn't I? Yeah. Um, that became kind of the standard thing. And that's how we kicked off every session. And then everywhere I've gone, uh, I've done it. Now, as time went on, and we'll, we'll take a break here, and then I'll go into my story. In time, uh, eventually, I, I told you they came up with a term limits for instructors. So my last session was 266, your session. And in there, um, I, had, I think I had two classes that I was teaching. And there was a woman that was sitting right over here. And every, if you, anybody that's done any instructing, anybody, anybody instructors at their academy? I think you are, right? Tell me if I'm wrong on this. In every group of people, you, it's almost like they plan this. There's certain types of students, right? You got the kiss ass. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. I got the answer to everything. You got the, the people that are apathetic. You got the people that don't care. And then you got the class terrorist, right? You got the class terrorist, the, the one that's trying to undermine you all the time. And you know, you know, Heidi will listen to this recording. She knows I'm going to talk to her. She can probably hear me from here. And so Heidi sat right over here. It, it's like an amphitheater type of thing. And she sat right here. And this is, this is Heidi. And you know Heidi, right? She's like kind of looking at me like this. And I thought, ah, that's the terrorist. And she, right from the beginning was taking notes on everything and wanted all, uh, all the information, all my PowerPoints, all these types of things. And I said, why do you need that? And she goes, because I'm going to steal it for my stuff. And I said, oh, what are you doing? And she said, um, I'm, I'm part of this program called Post-Critical Incident Seminars. And the Ohio version, she was the Ohio Highway Patrol, we're putting this together and it's called ASSIST. And it, it turns out she was in charge of putting this thing together. And she, the last bit of it, she needed an addiction piece but uh, she's not in recovery, doesn't have, have addictive issues. And she said, so what I didn't realize is this class has all the information, so I want to put all that together. Okay, great, so we're going to do that. And then later, uh, after she went back to Ohio, uh, and they put that together, and she was trying to put the curriculum together, it occurred to her, well, instead of reinventing the wheel or trying to do this myself, I could just have Mike come out and do it. So she called me up, and she said, can you come out and do a presentation on this? And, and I did. And I've been going out there for, it's been about five years now, have been doing it. Ironically, I retired from the FBI, left. She retired from the Highway Patrol, and then she got hired as a contractor to teach. And guess what class she's teaching? That one. And so it, was, it, it kind of all went back uh, full circle. So after I left, uh, retired from the FBI, and I became a contractor, was doing things with the, the agency, doing intel stuff, this followed me, and, and I didn't realize it, you know, the, the impact that it had. People from across the country would call up and they'd say, hey, listen, um, I, got a, I got a person that needs to go to treatment. Can I talk to you about it? I need to go to treatment. Can I talk to you about it? Hey, uh, addiction, is it really a disease or is that bullshit? How does that work? What's this a, a disease thing? You know, I'd explain it. And my wife would listen to this, and two things happened. She said, first, you spend as much time doing that as you do your actual job job. Uh, two, I'm noticing that you don't really care about that anymore, that this has become your life. And three, I've noticed that you're, you're having the same conversation over and over and over with people. 
you know, the, the disease model question is very common. She goes, I heard you have that conversation three times yesterday. Why don't you record your answers to that and put it out on a podcast? And I didn't even know what a podcast, I'd never heard of a podcast before. And uh, she said, you know, it's like the new thing that the kids are doing. You can do that. So let's, let's record this stuff and put it out. And we did. And then people started listening to that and it got more phone calls. And then somebody said, hey, you should do interviews. And I started interviewing people. And then more people started calling. Um, in fact, there was a guy named Mark Fetzer. Some guy from New Mexico called me up one time and said, hey, we want to talk about some projects that we're working on out in New Mexico. And so Mark's been on the, the podcast. And, uh, and, that, you know, and that's been good. And so it's, it's really just been training people. So in time, what my wife and I decided was that, that we would just make that my full-time job. And so I went back to school full-time to, to train to become a therapist. So I'm in the Hazel and Betty Ford graduate program to, um, to become a therapist, a drug and alcohol counselor. So I'm right now in the intern phase of it, and I'm at a treatment center in Maryland. Um, th this semester, I'm, I actually am working with airline pilots, flight attendants, uh, the DC area, so we get a lot of agencies, State Department, Bureau, and, and police officers. That's my group now. Last, last semester, it was just the general public that came in. And uh, it's been a real learning experience. And so that's what brought me to the point now where I'm doing this, this kind of stuff. And so uh, it, it's been really good. And now we're, we're promoting not just the chemical addictions, but the process addictions, suicide awareness, and family programs, and things along those lines. And so if you guys ever get a chance, like I say, Mark talks about the project that I think our first session was talking about the row across the Atlantic. That was the first one. And then I thought, well, <laughs> In the second one, we should maybe talk about why you're doing that, which is uh, uh, suicide awareness and things along those lines. So I really enjoyed it. So with that, so that's how we, we, we got to this point, and then we'll roll into the story. You guys ready to take a break? You want to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and roll into it? Any questions so far? Thanks again for listening to this section one of the FBI National Academy Retrainer given out in New Mexico on September 28th of 2021. And this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Find out more at FHEHealth.com. So as always, I'd like to say I don't represent any group. I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose is giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it has helped me and maybe it will help you too. So if I've said anything that does not apply to you or you don't agree with, you know, just discard it, but try to take any information that you can use for yourself yourself, and to help others as well, because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge we've gained to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's any topic that you're interested in hearing about, because I'd love to hear from you. And guys, take care, and I will be bringing part two of this presentation to you soon. Take care. Bye. <laughs>